0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Next year, in just a few days, change is coming to Iowa's Attorney General and Treasurer's offices. Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller and State Treasurer Michael Fitzgerald, both the nation's longest-serving officials in their positions, were defeated in this year's elections. Each has served 40 years. Now, earlier this week, you may have heard my conversation with outgoing Attorney General Tom Miller. If not, and you would like to, just check out our River to River podcast. In the first half hour today, a recent conversation I had with outgoing State Treasurer Michael Fitzgerald. Welcome to our program, Treasurer Fitzgerald.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you.
1: Let's start off. I want to get your reflections. um, And, uh, well, you've you've had such a span of service here in Iowa. Certainly want to ask you a little bit later about how you've seen our our political environment, the landscape change. Uh, But let's first of all... Uh, make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to understanding what the state treasurer here in Iowa does. Essentially, uh, it y- you've been acting as Iowa's banker uh, in addition to overseeing pension investments for state employees, uh, right? And, and add to that if you need to.
2: That's pretty much correct. Yeah, I'm the state banker, so if the state has any money, whether it's short-term money, which we have a lot, $8 billion, I invest it. Make sure it's invested properly. Uh, look over, I'm the custodian and trustee of our three pension funds. The biggest, of course, is IPERS, $40 billion. And I think um, like I said if the state borrows money, I borrow the money. So that's why the credit rating that we have at A has always been important to me. And uh, the bottom line is to keep the money safe. Mm
0: hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, Let's talk about this past election. Um, Iowa voters chose to elect the challengers, both in the Secretary of State uh, and uh, the state auditor. Um, They promised to work toward, in their campaign narratives, and you know this better than I do, uh, the GOP goals over you and Attorney General Miller's uh, goals, longtime Democratic incumbents. You argued your tenure brought nonpartisan successes. How surprised were you at the result?
2: Well, I was surprised. I was I was expecting to win. I was expecting Tom Miller to win. I knew it was a difficult year for Democrats with uh, <clears> the <throat> you know the the Democrats controlling the presidency and the house and the senate. And we also had Chuck Grassley on the ballot and he's you know what a warrior he's been for the Republican Party. But I I've been through that before, so I expected to win, so I was surprised when it didn't come up short.
0: Mhm.
1: in in hindsight, do you think you needed a different campaign narrative? Would that have served you better?
2: I don't think so. I think it was a combination of things that cost me my election and probably some of the other Democrats. You know, of course, the first is I have to give the governor and the Republicans credit. They raised a ton of money. They had a clear message and they were organized and working the state very hard. Mm -hmm. Democratic Party on the other side wasn't that organized and that uh and you can see it you know abby finkenauer our senate candidate almost got kicked off the ballot she had to go to the supreme court to get uh, you know because they didn't think she had enough signatures tom miller had that kind of a problem and also in the spring of the year when we had our liberty and justice dinner which is our big event of the year the party didn't even allow the state candidates to speak so it clearly sent a message we the state candidates weren't that important and I assume on down the line, maybe some legislative candidates in various areas of the state. I think the Democrats have to have a campaign out there for all the offices and take every area of the state very seriously. And we, when we did that, we won and uh, we've gotten away from that. So Yeah. Well, we, kind of
1: we, we, when you, you say that the, the state Democratic Party is to blame, what has to happen? Um, uh, where's the accountability? Uh, who's to blame, perhaps?
2: Well, that's an excellent question, and I don't have a great answer for that. You know, we have a state central committee, about 40 members, and they have to set our goals and missions, and uh, what is the party going to do? And right now, it's kind of unclear. You know, we lost the first in the nation caucus. I don't know. Maybe there was too much time and effort spent on that. I I don't know. The the party, uh, some of the insiders were trying to develop what they call the Hughes Project, whatever that is. And they spent time and effort on that. But um, so it was just kind of a scattershot effort this year. And uh, I think they need to be more focused and uh, uh, designed to help candidates get Democrat message out there of what we want to do—you know, fund education and clean up our water, things like that. Yeah, you so know, that's, that's my view.
1: Mm-hmm. Iowa is certainly known as a state of of loving to return incumbents to office. So, uh, you and Tom Miller uh, certainly uh, fit into that picture. Perhaps incumbency matters less to voters. Do you think?
2: Well, I suppose that's <clears throat> possible. But the other thing, too, is, is uh, just the world of politics has changed in the sense that money has become so, so important. Uh, my impon- opponent raised over, I believe, over $600,000, running 30-second messages that, you know, really don't reflect the, tr- the true issues of the state. Tom Miller's opponent raised $3 million. That's an incredible amount of money. When politics in Iowa delves into just being political, being as mean and nasty as you can, I don't think that uh, serves Iowa. And it takes away from what I think happened in the old days. Candidates had to go to town to town, Rotary Club, Lions Club, uh, League of Women Voters, all those events and express, why should you be their elected officials? I thought that was a good good way of doing politics, at least a better way. But uh, those things have changed, and money's a big part of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, let's talk a little bit about your tenure and you 40 years of tenure. Since 1983, I want to ask you how you first came to office, what inspired you to run for that office in the early 80s. But first, let's talk about the, the accomplishments you're most proud of. Um, just to list a list of few you started the 529 college savings savings plan uh the state abandoned asset recovery plan the that's called uh, known as the Great Iowa Treasure Hunt and the I Able program a savings program for Iowans with disabilities uh tell us a little bit about what what you're most proud of
2: well those are the three that I am the most proud of and again I would say bringing a AAA rating to the state uh I'm very proud of, you know, on the AAA part, that's really bread and butter, uh, treasury stuff. But I worked with the Republican auditor, Richard Johnson. We went around the state in the late eighties and early nineties and said, uh, as Richard Johnson would say, the state was keeping two sets of books. The rating agencies didn't trust the numbers we give them. So we got the state to do an honest set of books, gap accounting, if you will. And in 2008, we were able to get AAA ratings by all the credit ratings. Rating agencies in the country and that has served the state of Iowa. Well, because when we borrow money We get it a lot cheaper. We don't have to buy insurance that yada yada and it just reflects on other local governments on down through the state Mm -hmm. But uh, the other things we do that people are familiar with the great Iowa treasure hunt I'm very proud of that Uh, That the law was on the books in the like 1967 and I came in in 1983 And it just sat there. So I informed all the businesses hey, if you have money that belongs to Iowans, like abandoned checking accounts and savings accounts, or if you're a business, you own stocks that belong to Iowans and you can't find them to give them their dividends or things like that. If individuals have moved and not getting their damage deposits back, or if they used to, when you used to get a phone, you had to have a deposit down with a utility company or what have you, all those things, you got to turn it over so we can return it to the rightful owner. And it's just, it's bloomed in the amount of money that was turned over. We have returned over uh, $325 million. Over 600,000 Iowans have gotten money back. People are kind of familiar with the Great Iowa Treasure Hunt. And, uh, sometimes it may be only 50 or or $100, but it means a lot to people. But we've had as much as a million dollars returned to an individual, over a million dollars. So it's it's it can be very meaningful. And we've returned a lot of folks or a lot of money to folks, and it comes in faster all the time. We got $50 million turned over to us last year for businesses that they couldn't find the uh, owners. And Mm -hmm. of course, our office is looking for them very vigorously. But maybe even a bigger help is the uh, College Savings Iowa Plan. We all know how expensive it's gotten to be for kids to go to college, for parents to send their kids to college. And so in the late 90s, in 1998 we started College Savings Iowa. Put money in the savings plan, you get a te- you get a deducted from your Iowa income taxes, grows state or goes grows tax free from the federal government and the state government and it's professionally invested and it's it's grown like wildfire. We have almost 7 billion dollars in that account now. We have 280,000 accounts. Now I'm a grandfather so I have I have five accounts. So, you know, it's, uh, but we have tons of accounts, but I think I'm maybe even more proud that four and a half billion dollars has been taken out and used to send kids to college. And I continually hear from parents and grandparents how proud they are that they sent their kids through school without any debt or paid their first year of college for them and things like that. So that program has dramatically helped Iowans, and you mentioned IABLE, which is for Iowans who have disabilities, and that is a case where, you know, we're helping the kids go to college, but what if you have a a young person uh, that's blind or autistic or things like that? Parents and family want to give them a boost in life, too, and if you're on a government assistance program, if you have over $2,000, the government cuts you off. You're on your own at that point. Well, this program allows families to set up an account IABLE, which stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience, and they can put in money like you can for college savings, get your tax deductions, grows tax-free. Mm-hmm. But the disabled Iowan is able to use that money for whatever they want to do. Maybe they want to, if uh, they're maybe uh, paralyzed from the waist down, get mechanical stuff so they can drive a car, get around, get them mobile, or help them live on their own, or take certain lessons or whatever so it's uh those kind of things, but it's it's growing it's not as big because that Indeed. universe isn't as large but yeah. uh, it's growing and it's very popular
1: are you inspired by I imagine in all three of these programs you hear you hear from Iowans, uh, testimonials um words of thanks uh, that must be inspiring. Do you get those words?
2: I get those words by staff we get letters and uh thanks. And when I'm out, you know, when I was out campaigning, I'd hear it all the time. I'd hear from Republicans, Democrats, everybody. You know, we serve anybody. We don't check into politics. Uh, and it's it's one thing that's meaningful. We know we're helping Iowans. I've enjoyed that. It inspires me. Uh, but it also inspires our staff people, that how they can help somebody get going on something like this or find their lost assets, you name it. But, uh, yeah, it really demonstrates how government can work and help. Uh, individuals, and and these programs do.
1: If you've just joined us, uh, my guest this half hour, outgoing State Treasurer Michael Fitzgerald. Now, you named those uh, those accomplishments you're most proud of, the College Savings Plan, uh, Great Iowa Treasure Hunt, and the uh, Savings Program for Iowans with Disabilities. Um, I wonder, do you have any uh, worries? Uh, are there indications uh, that your success, successor, um, Robbie Smith, the treasurer elect, will change or, or stop these programs?
2: Well, I don't know who or what his position is on a lot of these programs, uh, how he will handle them. Uh, I would assume the college savings program, he made some comments that he would expand it or. Uh, spread the word on iABLE, which is good. Uh, I don't know what his position is on the treasure hunt. There's been movements by a number of Republicans to scale back the treasure hunt in the sense that just a few years ago, businesses now don't have to turn over uh, unredeemed gift cards to the state. All they have to do is say, oh, we'll never say they're uh, not valuable or not usable, and they get to keep them. Well, if you don't use them within a year or two, they're essentially lost. Um, But I I don't know what his position is there. Where I would worry the most is that, uh, you know, his pension, uh, he took care of the pensions, a custodian and trustee of IPERS uh, and the judges and the peace officers pension fund, too. And we've had great success. They're solid as a rock. They're, uh, depending on how you look at it, they could be 100% funded or close to it. Now, we don't have the problems that Illinois and Kentucky and some of those states have because we've had prudent management. You know, we have a good investment staff and we have other trustees that take it seriously and invest for the benefit of all these public people that are in these pension plans. Well, there's a movement afoot uh, by the uh, Republicans across the country to put in these ESG factors. And uh, I... Uh, that you can't even consider them, and those are risk factors. And I think if they do that, you're you're going to put another hardship on IPERS and the pension funds for the for the state of Iowa. And that, um, so I worry about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Help us understand here, because at the outset, describing the state treasurer as the banker, you know, no one thinks of their personal banker as partisan, or perhaps would even know <laughs> what their part political affiliation was. How is it that the state treasurer is partisan and in, in, in what way uh, can it be more conservative or more liberal help us understand that spectrum?
2: Well, it's it's a good question to get it off Asked a lot. A lot of people think it shouldn't even be an elective office, it ought to be a pointy of office. I'm glad it's a pointy because I have to answer right to the people. Am I am I returning your unclaimed property? Am I helping you save for college? Am I protecting your pension fund. And at the end of the day, taking care of Iowans can be political. And that uh, you like to think everybody's working for the same good cause, but the way people see it um, doesn't always turn out that way. And I I have terrible worries that uh, restrictions that will be put on IPERS investments will hurt that fund. And there's been movements in the past few years to change Ipers from a defined benefit pension plan to a defined contribution, like, oh, here's your four hundred one k, and you're on your own. Good luck. Where Ipers for seventy years now has proved to be so meaningful and beneficial to Iowans. Uh, so, so less away,
1: yeah, less government oversight would be the direction you would fear would come. Is what what you're describing?
2: Yeah, that well, that or maybe so much that it would strangle Ipers, and you know, Ipers gets underfunded, or if it does. There'll be a lot of people say, and like the Iowans for Tax Relief and whatnot, get rid of IPERS. Just make it a 401k plan. And that would send a lot of these retirees adrift. And a lot of them are teachers. Half of them are teachers that belong to IPERS. And I, we've heard education enough in this state that uh, I think if you give a big blow like that to individuals, that they would not have a retirement plan. Uh, serious, serious mistake for the state of Iowa if that happens.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have just over five minutes left, uh, Michael uh, Fitzgerald. Um, I wanted to sort of zoom out and take advantage of uh, the perspective you have with four decades in office as the state treasurer of Iowa. Uh, let's go back <laughs> to the early 1980s. Hard to believe Ronald Reagan was president when you first ran for office. Uh, Talk about how the political climate has changed, because that's certainly something you've witnessed. What was it like to work with the GOP, the other party, back in the 1980s compared to now? Oh, it's night and day.
2: The, uh, today, and it's really too bad. The other side is viewed as the enemy, horrible people. We're not all Iowans that maybe have a different point of view. It's the, you're the enemy. And that's that is not healthy, you know. In the eighties, and like I said, in the early nineties, the Republican auditor and I, Richard Johnson, drove around the state to a lot of these meetings, talk about issues that had to be changed that would help all of us. Uh, but besides that, in the eighties and nineties, uh, the legislature, uh, when they were in town, every night they would have. Uh, You know, different business groups or church groups or whatever would have receptions, you know, invite everybody to come and socialize and get to get to know their issues, but get to know each other. And people were friends and they talked about things and they were okay with, if you'd say, cutting a deal or compromising. And that's how uh, Iowans, I think, came up with the best policies. But today, compromise is a dirty word. Yeah, and that—that's uh, either all my way or the highway. You're out of here. And we—we we saw it last spring. You know, when the governor didn't get uh, what uh, eight or nine representatives didn't even vote for her uh, uh, education plan. She went out and campaigned against them in a primary, and she won. What's
1: what's what's driving think, what's driving all this change that you've seen over the past decades?
2: I think it's big money. Big money. It's unbelievable. You know, why would somebody? Uh, my, like I said, my opponent raised, I think, six, seven dollars $700,000. Why would individuals give them $10,000, $20,000? Well, people have interests, and uh, um, they want to win at any cost. It's uh, And good government's got left behind. Yeah, but it's is, it's turned into to a mean business.
1: Right. I, well, I wanted to ask about that. Is, has civility suffered?
2: Big time. Big time. It's... Uh, the, the point of view of making people look bad, uh, that's what you have to do. And you can stretch the truth to do it. You, you mentioned Tom Miller. Sheriffs on the TV ad say Tom didn't help them. Tom isn't the local county attorney and things like that. The only time they're used is if they're invited in to do something. But uh, that's kind of the mean-spiritedness. And they put on a uniform, but they're politicians. You know, you're elect- My brother's an elected po- uh, sheriff. They're politicians. And they get the impression that, oh, uh, that's legally the way it is. Well, it's not. It was stretched the truth. But it happens in all the races. Mm-hmm. Um, it's big money. you got to tell a story. And if you have a few lies in there, that's good, too.
1: A couple quick questions before we have to say goodbye. Um sure. what, are you, what are you doing now to, to help the transition to new leadership, uh, the uh, state— uh, treasurer-elect elect there is that going smoothly?
2: I think it's going smoothly i I congratulate him. He won the election, and i uh forty years ago, my predecessor said to, you know he'd show me anything I wanted to know and whatever thought made sense and so I've you know right away told my opponent that we have do the same, and we have i have my deputy has worked with an individual of his of his. And we try to answer any questions. We've made an office available if they want to interview staff or
0: mm-hmm.
2: talk to them, things like that. Anything they want, okay. And, um, you know, I don't know. I hope he keeps them because we have a lot of good staff, but we have a lot of openings in our staff too. Because, you know, during an election year, I hate to go out and hire somebody, can't promise them future. And uh, the new person, if they win, needs to hire their people. But yeah. uh, the transition's going well. Okay. Uh,
1: In closing, what are your plans for the future? Um, I'm sure a lot of disappointment, of course, you've had to digest, but maybe you're part of you glad to have a new beginning to pursue something else?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm 71 years old, but I've been blessed with good health. Knock on wood. You know, I can change any time but uh i'm not done yet i would like to uh, figure out where i can add value i you know i love the state and i think most people are in public service do and how can we give back you know i've benefited so uh if i can do something to help the local community the state of iowa I would love to do that, and uh, but I don't know what that is at this point. Mm-hmm. After January 1st, I'll start looking a little closer at that.
1: Okay, Michael Fitzgerald, outgoing state treasurer, uh, has been in office since 1983. We wish you well in your future endeavors, Michael Fitzgerald.
2: Thank you very much. Great to talk to you, Ben.
1: Take care. Bye now.
0: Okay,
2: bye.
1: Coming up after a short break, we remember former University of Iowa President Sandy Boyd. He died last week at the age of 95. My guest is a former dean of the University of Iowa Law School, Bill Hines. That conversation coming up, it's River to River from
0: IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room. At upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR
1: News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Willard Sandy Boyd died last week at the age of 95. Boyd served as the University of Iowa's 15th president from 1969 to 1981. He left the UI in the early 1980s to become president of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. After retiring from the Field Museum, he returned to the UI as a law professor in 1996 and served as interim president of the UI in 2002-2003. Now, he formally retired from the university in 2015, though he continued to share his wisdom uh, with many people, faculty members, administrators, anyone really who sought him out. He led the University of Iowa through some really turbulent times. For instance, when protests against the Vietnam War rocked the campus in Iowa City. Also, he saw a period of dramatic growth at the campus. Let's remember and celebrate the life of Sandy Boyd with a longtime friend we're so happy to have in our studio, Bill Hines, former UI law professor and dean of the UI Law School. Bill Hines, welcome to our program.
3: Glad to be here.
1: You became close friends, I understand, with Sandy Boyd after uh, meeting him in the mid-1960s. Condolences for the loss of this longtime friend. And there's so much we could point to. I'm sure you'll agree. But what stands out in your mind about Sandy Boyd's remarkable professional career? Let's start there.
3: Well, Sandy was uh, one-of-a-kind uh, professional in, in my experience. I, I had a lot Of connection with him over the years. And I I was always amazed uh, at the extent to which he wasn't a classic professor. He wasn't a classic administrator. He he wasn't a classic leader in in almost any sense because he was so humane uh, in the way he dealt with people. He he always was one of the best listeners you would ever talk to. Mm. His motto in life was, keep it brief, And that was true of his own remarks, but he would listen endlessly to other people and, from his point of view, learn from them. He always used to say, you don't ever learn anything when you're talking. You only learn when you're listening. And that philosophy basically guided his entire professional, professorial, and administrative career. He was somebody who always took the time to sit with people and simply listen. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the uh, protest during the Vietnam era. Sandy was one of the few presidents in the country, as far as I know, who welcomed the protesters into his office and into his home. For almost a year, he had student protesters sitting in the hallway of his presidential office in Jessup Hall, And every morning, uh, he instructed his secretary to give the students donuts and coffee, and really? that he would walk out and, and talk to them and sort of listen to their whatever it was they were grieving at the moment uh and you know he would engage them as people and not uh, as sort of some sort of symbol of something else
1: right and just to remember there will be many listeners who may not know much about the or witnessed it or experienced it firsthand the tumult of the late 1960s early 70s in the with the Vietnam war going on there were frequent marches, uh, demonstrations all across the country, many campuses, sometimes violent. There were demonstrations, I understand, at President Boyd's family home in Iowa City, wasn't there?
3: Yeah, occasionally, although most of the demonstrations were actually at the presidential mansion, the president's house. By that time, he and Susan and her family were living there. So that during the period of the demonstrations, they finally moved into the president's house. Uh, when he became president in '69. This is sort of another indication yeah. of who Sandy was. He didn't live in the house for the first four or five years oh. uh, because the university was so sort of space for everything else. They had a lovely family home on River Street, and they just stayed in that family home. And the president's home was given over to uh, housing various small academic departments that didn't have space. The Urban and Regional Planning Center was there for four or five years. The students would come to the president's house to do their demonstrating, and then after a while they caught on that he wasn't there. So then they started going to their home. Yeah. And when they went to the home, inevitably he and Susan would invite them in. What was
1: the thinking? How did that fit into the way Sandy Boyd approached leadership?
3: That was his style of leadership, uh, was engage. Uh, he was not a fond of, f- a fan of conflict. Uh, and so he tried almost on every occasion to sort of smooth things out and listen to people and, and, and engage with them in direct conversation about whatever it was with, what they were worried about, and you know, he mostly listened. He was not very prone to take positions or make declarations or sort of respond directly to their concerns. Rather, he would listen and then sort of explain sort of how this fit into the larger picture of the university and the, the larger community. That, that was his style
1: and of course, a president has to make many important decisions, a university president and the university of this caliber. after all this listening, how did he arrive at decisions? Was he also uh sort of unconventional, uh,
3: not classic in that in that sense too? Well, I think he was more classic in the sense that he sort of had his own kitchen cabinet that that he consulted, and it, it wasn't necessarily the people that you would think uh, that would be. His major uh, sources of advice. It was people that he had come to know on the university campus whose judgment he, he, he uh, respected a great deal. Uh, and that was, you know, that was just his way of, of, of deciding things. He, he would consult with a wide range of people. He, he always wanted to get a full range of viewpoints before he ever came to a decision. He wanted to hear what everybody had to say about it. So he was not a quick decision maker. In fact, he often, uh, in my opinion, let, let things go to the point that it wasn't necessary to make a decision. Vince had already taken over. Mm. Sandy always was sort of let, letting it go as long as you could go uh, without it having sort of getting out of control. And then when it started to get out of control, then he would step in and make a decision. But during the Vietnam demonstrations, for example, he was always present on campus if, if there were students demonstrating on campus somewhere on the lawn of the old Capitol, for example, he would come out and meet with them and talk to them and just try and find out what was on their mind. He, he insisted on being highly visible. By contrast, a lot of presidents I knew around the country at that time sort of went into hiding. They didn't, didn't want to engage. Right. And how did, how did the students respond to this openness? Almost all of them responded very favorably. You know, there were a few firebrands who were constantly goading the president, and trying to get him to act irrationally. Uh, and he would never take that bait. He would always listen to them. Uh, you know, and if, if they were becoming insulting, he would say, "Well, that isn't. You know, we're not getting anywhere with those kind of comments." And he would, you know, caution them that there was no reason to take things personally. You know, yeah. These were issues that that required, cool, cool calm di- discussion, and, and not outrageous charges.
1: Well, that really speaks to our times, too, doesn't it? Civility.
3: Sandy was the, the <laughs> champion of civility in almost every way you could be. Uh, that, was, that was his style. He, uh, during the Vietnam era, when there was a threat of violence and there was people talking about blowing up buildings and burning down things, uh, he recruited a faculty crew whose job it was to walk the campus at night Uh, sort of as campus monitors and uh, engage in the students who were out and to kind of keep their eyes open on whatever was going on. And and we therefore never had the kind of things that happened at Wisconsin and some other places where students uh, got carried away and were burning down buildings or blowing things up. And I think part of that was because we had this crew of I don't know, there must have been 50 faculty or so who volunteered to be monitors on the campus 24 hours a day and engage with whatever was going on to try to keep the lid on things.
1: If you've just joined us, Bill Hines is my guest for this portion of the program, a former Law professor at the University of Iowa, former dean of the law school, in fact. Uh, a longtime friend of Sandy Boyd, former UI president, um, has uh, knew Sandy Boyd going back to the mid-1960s. Uh, We're celebrating Sandy Boyd's life uh, after his uh, passing uh, last week. You you brought a couple of books into the studio. What do, what do you have for us uh, there?
3: One of them is Sandy's memoir, uh, which was published in 2015, I think it was. And it's it, it's an amazing book. I, I haven't made all my way all the way through it, and I, if preparing for this, I probably should have sat down and read a lot of it during the weekend, but it, it is so detailed and so <laughs> dense mm. in terms of the, the detail it presents. He kept every slip of paper that ever passed through his hands on file, and he built up just gigantic uh, File cabinet after file cabinet of files. In fact, when he was, when he stepped, when he became provost, uh, there was a problem in this was 1964 in moving his files out of the law school into some other place because someone was going to be taking his office. And I think the university ended up actually renting a storage unit simply to contain his files. They were so extensive in 1964. <laughs> And they Uh continue to grow for the rest of his career. And I don't know where they are now, but he managed to (laughs) use all this stuff in his memoir. I mean, he'd got details of things in his memoir that I can't imagine he ever actually remembered. But he has all of this file material going back. Uh, When Sandy was uh, president and when he was back on campus— when I was dean, we used to invite him to the alumni reunion receptions for the older classes and he would come to speak at those events and he would bring his class notes and his roll and his grade sheet and everything from the class he taught them uh, some 50 years ago and he, he would recite from that material you know, things that they would remember and find of interest. It was, it was just amazing his access to stuff that was 30, 40, 50 years old that he could carry around with him and actually refer to in his remarks. I I can't pick out a passage from the memoir other than I was interested in reading it to to discover that uh, he came from an academic family. His father was a professor in the Econ Department at the University of Minnesota. And according to his memoir, uh, Sandy's sort of interest in public service and particularly interest in in a state university's service to the state in which it exists evolved very early in his life. He used to go around with his father to various extension programs and observe his father helping uh, farmers out in the hustings to do their job better, to be more efficient in their crop production or their animal husbandry or whatever it was. That he became convinced that that was something that state universities really ought to be engaged in, that it it isn't just the classroom and it isn't just the research lab that you should be extending your knowledge and your services on out to the people of the state, so that the university becomes just a part of their understanding of how the whole state government works.
1: I believe you have you have a commencement address that he he delivered that sums up some of the things that he stood for and. And uh, some of the wisdom he imparted to to others.
3: Yeah, uh, s- someone wrote a, a short eulogy over the weekend that was in the newspapers and, and described Sandy as sort of the master of the pithy phrase, and, and that's not a bad uh, characterization because he, he always <laughs> was regarded as somebody who whose wisdom was worth hearing, and it was always cut very short. It was not long and winded. Long winded. It was very short. Uh, this is a. Uh, what he calls his valediction. Uh, this is a, a commencement address that was given in July of 1981 as he was leaving the university. So he described himself and the students as both graduating that year. And it was, it's a very short address, but a couple of parts of what I think are very typical, Sandy. Part of me says, change is constant. Embrace it with enthusiasm. Keep your mind open and inquiring. Remember, however, that change is more often superficial than profound. Life is more evolutionary than revolutionary. Therefore, adapt a set of timeless beliefs to hold firm in order to maintain your identity and your integrity through your life, whatever change brings. Um, That's just one little piece. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let me read you one other short passage. Sure. The world is filled with others as well as you. It it, it belongs to everyone without regard to race, sex, creed, or other differences. Be affirmative about others. Others give meaning to life. Be interested in others, and you will be interesting to them. Be committed to others, and they will be committed to you. I mean, those are the kind of uh, philosophies that Sandy constantly uh, supported and and shared with others. I wonder
1: if we could pivot a little bit to more of the personal side. You were a friend of Sandy Boyd uh, going back to the mid-1960s.
3: Yeah, let me correct you on that. It's even earlier than that. We came to Iowa in 1962. Uh, Sandy and Susan had been here since 1954 and that that's the that's the margin of age difference between us. Sandy is almost ten years older than I am, mm-hmm. uh, which means uh, you know, we we were in the same generation, but but yet not quite. I graduated from high school the same year he started teaching at Iowa in, in the law school.
1: I see. Uh, so you first you first met when?
3: First met when uh, I was uh, coming to campus. Um, I was explaining to a group last night that faculty hiring in those days was not like it is today. And Sandy and I were both hired by the same dean, Dean Mason Ladd, who retired uh, in 1966. And uh, Sandy and I were as they jokingly called ourselves uh, Mason Ladd's diversity hires because we were the only two people in the faculty who had actually gone to law school at a state school. Uh-huh. Everybody else in the faculty was from Harvard, Yale, Columbia, uh, the the elite private schools. And Sandy and I went to Minnesota, and I went to Kansas, and we, we sort of had that bond to start with. We were, we were a little bit different than most of the other faculty. When we came in 1962, I started teaching in May of 1962, and Sandy and his family went to Michigan that summer. Sandy was finishing up his graduate degree in law at Michigan, and they offered us the use of their house for the summer, because we were coming to town with a one-year-old child and had never been to Iowa City before. I mean, when I say the hiring was different, it was really different. The dean would go out and interview people at the elite law schools who wanted to be teachers. Then he would come back and share his perceptions with the faculty. But there was never a vote. Uh, as far as I know, the faculty never voted to hire me. The dean just decided, as he did with Sandy. Uh, and so uh, when I showed up on campus, I'd never been to Iowa City in my life. So we, we came in, as I said, in May to start teaching immediately in the summer school and didn't have any arrangements made for housing. And Sandy and Susan very graciously offered us the use of their house for the summer. Mm. So we got to know them uh, in a different way than we knew anybody else on the faculty because we were living in their house, and uh, there was a little overlapping on both ends in terms of living together.
1: One of the interesting things that I read, perhaps you can illuminate what's behind this, uh Uh, I read that his his son said his father really didn't answer to President Boyd or even Willard. He preferred this name, Sandy, and that's the way you got his attention. That's what he really liked. What does this tell you about his character to be not, not necessarily President Boyd, but Sandy Boyd?
3: Well, I, I can understand and identify with that. Uh, Sandy had been Sandy in his family virtually from the time he, he was talking. Uh, he, he was, uh, as I am, was a junior. He's Willard Lee Boyd Jr. Uh, and that was a lot of words to get out. So the family just called him Sandy. And as, what was he preferred? So that all through his life, uh, he would correct people when they tried to give him a different name and simply <laughs> say, please call me Sandy. Yeah, uh, I've had the same experience with Bill. Uh, my family called me Bill, even though I was Norman William Jr. <laughs> and so I, I understand perfectly where he's coming from. Once you get used to a name you like, you know, it's it's uncomfortable to have people start calling you with with titles.
1: And, and right, so Sandy is a name that that uh, breaks down the walls, the barriers. So you meet a new person and you say, "Hi, I'm Sandy." Wow, uh, there's the distance gone, right?
3: That was exactly how he used it. Yes.
1: I wonder if, in closing, Bill Hines, uh, there's a memory of your friend Sandy Boyd that uh, you can recall that brings a smile to your face that you'll, you'll cherish forevermore.
3: Well, this is less about Sandy than more, and more about Mary Sue Coleman, but when Sandy came back to the campus in 1996, and by the way, I, the audience should understand that's extraordinary for a university president after 15 years away to come back to the campus where he started and just pick it all up as a professor and serve out from from 1996 until 2015 uh, full-time professorship. Uh, So that was strange in its own right. But when Sandy left in 1981, the regents basically said, uh, President Boyd, you are a member of the University of Iowa community and you're welcome to come back. Uh, and join us again when when you're when you're ready. And so, in 1996, when he after 15 years, he decided to accept that option. Uh, president Coleman was just beside herself with alarm. Uh, the idea of having a very successful, very popular former president coming back, just as she was starting her presidency, was <laughs> very uh, unnerving to her. And so, I had a meeting with her to explain that Sandy Boyd is not your classic former president. You know, he will be the most valuable person on campus to you. He will support you in any way you need support. He will be available for advice if you want to talk to him, but he will mm-hmm. not be intrusive. You know, he is the perfect person to have coming back after a successful career and being on your campus. He will be a gem in terms of you know, the benefit to the University of Iowa, and it turned out exactly that way. Yeah. Uh he and Mary Sue became very close friends. Uh he was available to advise her, but he never, you know, put himself forward. He was always just there if she wanted him.
1: Yeah. Well, B- Bill Hines, uh you've really given us some insights and some glimpses and celebrating Sandy Boyd's uh life. Uh, Sandy Boyd died last week at the age of 95, uh, the 15th president of the University of Iowa, 1969 to 1981, and then again later as an interim president. Bill Hines, thank you so much for sharing um, memories of Sandy Boyd, uh, your friend, going back many decades. We appreciate it. Take care.
3: My pleasure.
0: Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. And that does it for today. Today's
1: program produced by Danny Gere and Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. We'll